Christmas uh, uh, marriage chapter uh, that is always read at, uh, at weddings, of course. Um, but this is, of course, in the context of the, the spiritual gifts. Um, if we were doing, I keep on saying, if we were just doing a series on the spiritual gifts, it would look very different. I would sort of try and trace it all through history and give you the biblical theological foundations for the spiritual gifts. I would go all over all of the different uh, chapters that Paul addresses it, and we'd look at all the different uh, contexts, and, and I'd go, go across all the different questions that might come up. And I definitely wouldn't have a standalone sermon on love. That's a waste of time. And then I'd keep, you know, wrap up with something powerful and friendly and whatever. But, but we're not doing a series on the, on the spiritual gifts. We're doing a series on God's Word as he wrote through Paul to the Corinthians the first time. And so what we have is is we're bound to God's context, God's order, and God's Word, which is, of course, a joyful thing. Uh, We've been coming through as as Paul gets to these chapters, chapter 12 through 14, he's addressing specific questions and reports that he's heard from the Corinthians, that in their church there there are the better gifts, the higher gifts, there's Obviously, tongues is right up the top, and the ability to do that spontaneously and, and miraculously in the middle of a surface, that's the, that's the high spiritual gift. And then there's the other ones, like prophecy is pretty cool too, uh, but it's harder to fake. And then, uh, you know, there's the other ones which might help out, like administration, eh, maybe even teaching, but who cares? Uh, the good ones are uh, tongues and prophecy. And it was just a mess. Remember, we've gone through everything. Yeah. People have lawsuits against each other. One dude's newly rich, buying a Ferrari because he sued this guy over here for everything that he's worth. This guy's sleeping with his in-law, mother, and, and people are sleeping with each other, going to the prostitutes. They're cheating each other out of money. They're insulting each other. It's, and one's drunk from communion. The other guy's still starving. It's just a mess of a place. And so it's so fitting that not just in the section and in the middle of his address of spiritual gifts, but right in the middle, um, I, I think, or at the core, because it's not numerically the middle, don't come at me later, mathematicians, but in the middle of his discussion of the gifts and at the center of the real problem of the Corinthians is that they do not have an embodiment of the love of Jesus Christ. And this has been so evident because they, they were, they were uh, obsessing over status and so many different things and not the crucifixion of Jesus back in chapters 1 and 2. They were obsessing over wisdom and all of this and not the cross and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's so uh, uh, interesting, of course, as we look at churches around the place in our day and age who will maybe overemphasize love and wave a flag of love and acceptance and tolerance and diversity and whatever, but, but in uh, forsaking or being distracted from the preaching of the penal substitution of Jesus Christ as the cursed Messiah who went into the ground with our sins and resurrected as the glorious Lord who now sits on the throne, without that, Everything about love in a biblical context is lost. And so it's actually interesting that people who do, who seek to pursue so-called love, miss the very definition of love that we see in Scripture of Christ. But nonetheless, he's, we're going to read chapter 13 uh, as it uh, reads in, um, I'm going to be reading the ESV as Paul wrote to them. This is the, this is the, the, the stop that he makes. Next week, we'll be looking at how prophecies and tongues are meant to be engaged in in the public assembly. That'll be fun. And the week after that, we're going to look at Paul's admonition for orderly worship and what the worship service of the church is really meant to be. I think that'll be a bit interesting. But before Paul gets there, he's defined gifts. He's told us all we're of one body, many members in Christ for the mission. He stops and doesn't go on a ridiculous tangent, but exactly what they need to hear lays the foundations of the heart motivation in love. Hear now the word of the living, almighty God. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, even as I, uh, uh, but then face to face, pardon me. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading and exposition of his precious authoritative word. This chapter on love needs first that we define love. We're going to see all the things that love does and characteristics of love. But of course, if, if we say we need a foundation of you know, concrete, and uh, we just send everybody else off without carefully defining what it is that goes into concrete that makes it concrete and not paper mache, uh, then you're going to have a bad day, a couple of weeks, a couple of days, a few months, years on later when the foundation is built. You, you called it love, but it was defined wrongly, unbiblically, as things start crumbling, and it's a great and expensive work to go back and restore a foundation. I want to first just define for us love. I'm going to give you my definition, because if we get it wrong, it's, the whole chapter will make very little sense, of course. People will want to define love as not offending anybody, being accepting with everybody, uh, opening your arms to everybody undiscerningly and affirming, now, having deep affectation towards people, crying every now and then, not being too loud, all these things. <clears throat> yes, I've been told all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, love is, here's my definition, I think drawn faithfully from Scripture. Love is embodying the law of God in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Got it? Love is embodying the law of God in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church for the sake of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I'm going to sort of defend each one of those phrases. We start with, number one, love is embodying the law of God. There are so many of us who... Who, 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 will, who will think of love and tangentially the law, or that the law and love are somehow related. I guess God commanded both of them, but there's one that looks really ugly, legalistic, and harsh, and there's one which is warm and beautiful and, and Christ-like. And yet, if we think that way, we understand neither love nor law. We, we misunderstand both of them. We think one of them is evil. The other one came, came from God. We, we despise the law. We want love. It, define love wrongly without realizing that 
God spoke the law in love. The fulfillment of the law is love. Love is infused through the law and and fulfills the law as we're going to see here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and down to 40 says, that when Jesus, when he was being asked about uh, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, uh, in the law of God, of course, the man asked him. Jesus said, the first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that when we look at the Old Testament, we see all of these laws and all of these temporary uh, commandments to Israel, and we look at all of the prophetical writings and all of the everything that was written. All that they really are is the is the the, the prisms of love held up and a huge light of God shining through it, and we see what love looks like in this fallen world. In all that the, the, the Old Testament was written, it all hangs on. All of the commandments, all of the prophecies, they ultimately hang on the same thread of loving God and loving neighbor. The Reformed theologians break up the the first and second tables of the Ten Commandments. The first four are how to relate to God, how to love God. They they sort of look at this verse and say that's what they're doing. First commandments are have no other gods before him, don't worship him through idols, uh, 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 maintain his name as holy, and keep the Sabbath day. That's how to love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength. And then the, the following six are how to embody love for neighbor, as Jesus then says. So love is to fulfill the law. Law undergirds all of God's, sorry, love undergirds all of God's law. When Romans 13, Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We can't set these two things against from each other, saying, I don't like law, but I, but I like love, or I prefer the law to love. It's more strong. It's more black and white. It's not as touchy-feely. I'm not one of those dudes. I just like the law. Well, the law is love. Love looks like that law. They are opposite sides of the very same coin. So we've said love is embodying the law of God, in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church. We're going to look at that phrase now. In Christ-like sacrificial service to the church, uh, John 13, verse 34, uh, is Jesus again showing to us the example of love. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you ought to love one another. So there we see that love is defined by being Christ-like. That's why I've got the word Christ-like in our definition. It's fulfilling the law of God in Christ-like living. So it has to be like Christ to be love. But then we, uh, we also see here in 1 John 3.16 that that love of Christ, which is law-fulfilling, has a certain flavor to it, and that is sacrificial service. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So God's love in Jesus looks like fulfilling the law and sacrificially serving us, and therefore our love will also look the same. Christ-like service to the church. Of course, we don't atone for one another, but we serve one another. Or we can see in Romans 5.8, this Christ-like sacrificial to the elect people of God is the flavor of love. 
Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the love of God. Christ-like, sacrificial, serving the people of God. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, uh, in speaking about their theological knowledge, he says, that knowledge that you've got that is unattached to love, that puffs you up, but true knowledge build, uh, sorry, true love builds up. And he's, of course, talking about the church. So again, love builds up the church. Uh, and in John chapter 21, we see that famous scene of Jesus with Peter, the one who rejected him, who denied him three times, called down curses on people, whoever said that he was even, even knew of Jesus and ran away, left Jesus to die alone and friendless. Jesus meets him again after the resurrection and gives him opportunity to undo all of those three statements. Three times he asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And on the affirmative response of each one of them, Jesus said then, or in other words, what that's going to look like, Peter, is feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, feed my lambs. Love to Christ and love itself looks like serving the church with our gifts and our abilities. So, love is fulfilling the law of God in a Christ-like, sacrificial way that serves the church. And I think a fundamental but often forgotten one here is this last phrase, for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We've got as our ultimate motive, what we're looking over the horizon to aim at is that Jesus would be glorified in all of the people of, that he has chosen all over the world coming to him in worship and giving him the glory that he deserves. Uh, all of the, the above things that we've just spoken about of Christ dying was, of course, to that end. Not just for the good of the church, but the building of the church, which is the Great Commission the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth to develop the church throughout the world. So, and then of course we see this as uh, Paul's motivation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 6, he's talking about all the, the horrible things that happened to him as, a, as an apostle missionary. And he, he's, he's going through all of his motivations and all of the characteristics of his heart. And he says, among all these other things, he says, and with genuine love, we go and we preach the gospel. This is why I'm suffering, because I've got genuine love to reach the lost, to build the church to the glory of Jesus. So, concluding here, love is embodying the law of God in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So we now talk about love in the rest of the chapter. That's what Paul has in mind. You loving God in, in relationship and worship through Jesus and then having the motivation, the affections, the decision, the intention and the actions to love your church body and all Christians uh, to build them up no matter the cost to your own self and life and to win the lost to Jesus Christ, to his everlasting, unending glory forevermore. That's love. That's what real love looks like, and therefore love is not something undefined, squishy, and liquid that we can uh, define as we see fit. You're going to see now in verse 1 through 3 that Paul, in this very poetic language throughout this chapter, he talks about the necessity of, of love in everything a Christian does. The necessity of love in everything a Christian does. And he says it in the, in the way of saying, no matter what you do, no matter how gifted you are, 
No matter how miraculous your gifting is, no matter how impressive your office or job is and your ministry, successful and and flourishing and whatever else, no matter how many hours you give and strive and blood you lose and sleepless nights you have serving the church and the Great Commission to the glory of Jesus, if you don't have that genuine love that we've just defined, it counts for nothing. It loses its kingdom value as far as you are concerned. See what I say here? He says, uh, even spiritual gifts don't replace love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and, and faith to move mountains and all of this, he's saying, no matter how gifted you are without love, you produce nothing, you are nothing, and you gain nothing, which we'll look at in just a bit. No matter your tongues, your prophecy, your knowledge. And of course, he uses this as like a, an argument from the greater to the lesser. He uses this hyper, hyperbolic language of tongues saying, because many people read this verse and go, oh, speaking in tongues is speaking the language of angels. Uh, it's not. This is language of, uh, the gift of tongues is speaking either, as we've said, human languages miraculously, or simply speaking in a spiritual language to God in private prayer. And, and Paul is saying, even if you have the gift of tongues that not can just speak any human language, but could even extend to the nations of heaven and speak angelic languages, even then, now we're not to expect that's usual tongue usage, but even then, if you could do that without love, it's nothing. It's not impressive. It's not used by the King Jesus in the Great Commission. And then he'll also use this hyperbolic, hyperbolic language of prophecy and say, if I have Uh, uh, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And we know that's hyperbole because no one, no prophet, not even the apostles understood all mysteries and all knowledge. Of course, he says, if I have that, and and then he says again of the the gift of of faith, which is tied to healings and miracles. He says, if I had all faith so that I could just pluck up mountains and chuck them away, which was the picture that Jesus gave of, of strong faith, So, but even if that was a regularity in my life, just moving mountains to the side because of my powerful, miraculous faith, even that is of no consequence, no value in the kingdom if we have not love. And then he says also, of course, if I give away everything or if I give up my own body to destruction, surely there's some some self-conviction in Paul here. He's reflecting even on his own life because he comes pretty close to literally all of those things that he just measured. He's spoken with angels in the, up in the third heaven. He's, he's had miraculous powers and faith. He's spoken prophecies and un, unfolded the mysteries for us like no other apostle did. Surely he's preaching to himself here as much as he's preaching to them. And he's somebody who, who has, remember, we, we spoke back in chapter 1 and 2. Paul was an ugly, weird-looking dude. Ugly, weird-looking dude. The sort of guy who would be like selling weird, obscure mechanical parts in some backwaters Logan workplace. Not a face for the checkout chick. Not a face for TV. He'd been beaten so many times. He had this huge, crooked nose like an old boxer. Like, think Sylvester Stallone without all the Botox. And he had this... They, they say he had a monobrow. Church history says that he had one thick uh, uh, eyebrow. Um, and, and that also, after all of the beatings that he had endured, he had huge calluses all over his back from the scars and legs that were bent outwards at the knees so that he sort of wobbled like a, like a kid's toy. He was just, and he was super short as well. These was, this was what his body had endured 
for the sake of the Great Commission. He wasn't born like that. He was abused and killed a couple of times, brought back. He was stoned, left for dead. He was thrown over walls. This was Paul. He's saying, even me, I have to, I have to write this and, and reflect on this. No matter what I do, if I don't have love, it is of no consequence. Without the embodying of the law of God in Christ-like sacrificial service to the church, motivated for the fulfillment of the great commission and the glory of Jesus, without that, I can be as nice as you want. I can be unoffensive as you want. I can be warm and gentle and say sorry all the time and be affectionate and generous and gifted without, all of, without true Christ-like love. It counts for no gain. And look at the cost. So verses 1 to 3, he says three different phrases um, <clears throat> at the end of each verse. It says, so if I have tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. The end of verse 2, he's going to say, if I don't have love, I am nothing. The end of verse 3, he's going to say, if I have not love, I gain nothing. The noisy gong or, or clanging cymbal is a picture of uh, of, of this monotone instrument that couldn't hold a melody, like me singing. It is, is this uh, symbol or gong, which in the pagan cultures was used in their worship ceremonies uh, to, to not hold a melody like we do in Christian worship of singing and making something beautiful. It was just about noise and repetition. Gong, 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 monotone, ugly, disgusting. Uh, but that's what they would do in, in their worship to their false pagan gods. I think Paul's referring to that. But also, it's, it's the sort of thing that if you've got a symphony, if you've got a, a rockin' band going, if you've got a tremendous worship band, like we do here at Hope Reform Baptist Church, and you add this thing into that mix, it's worse with it added than if it had been left out. And of course, I think it's sort of reflecting on the gift of tongues as people thought they were acting in it, as, as there would be a great worship service, maybe a sermon, maybe praises being lifted up, and they would just burst out in the middle of everything with these ridiculous glossolalia fluttering from their lips as they convulse and claim to be spiritual. It's taking away. It's an instrument in the church that we're just better without. So that gifts without love are a worse addition to the worship of Jesus and the, and the work of the church, then no gifting. Then no gifting. Without love, we are that noisy, clanging, symbol gong. We don't produce anything. I think that needs to, uh, we need to see that under this, if Paul is using this as a lesson, we need to realize that he assumes we want to be productive. He's saying, if you come with all of your tongues and with all of your giftings, but you don't have love, you're producing, adding, gaining nothing. We should therefore realize I should be, if that rebuke is going to land at all, I should care about what I'm producing in the worship of God. In other words, what I'm achieving for the Great Commission. It's not enough to be, I've heard it said this way, completely input-driven. I don't care who gets saved. I don't care who gets edified. I don't care whether the church grows. I don't care about that. All I know is that I'm going to bring my gifts. I'm going to enact what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I'm good at, and God can handle the rest because he's sovereign. It's not enough. Paul's mindset, we have to be input-driven and output-focused, wondering what is what I'm doing, is it producing something? Are souls being saved? Are people being edified and blessed? And the church helped and grown and the Great Commission accomplished by my doings. We have to be motivated by that and continually assessing our service in that light. He says also in verse 2, if I have all the knowledge and whatever else, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
This is, this is a stab at the Greco-Roman and especially Corinthian love of status. The, the, the biggest insult you could give in the Greek world among the philosophers was you don't exist. You are not. Because they, saw, they sort of had this philosophical spectrum of existence and non-existence is good and evil. Evil was non-existence. And so you would say to somebody, you don't exist Today, they'll just laugh at you because that's not a real good sentence or insult. But then, that was, that was so much. And so here's Paul. He's saying, if you have all of this and you think you'll be sitting at the tip-top right and left hand of Jesus Christ in glory, you are nothing. You don't exist. You're not even a tool in the repertoire of Jesus Christ. He doesn't use you for his kingdom. You are nothing. According to the Great Commission, you're not bringing anything to the table. How harrowing to think, to look back on your life and realize this. And he says, of course, the last time, in the end of verse 3, he says, if I do all of this, given up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. How many Christians don't realize that it's a good thing to be motivated by what you're gaining, by eternal rewards? Paul's already touched on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that I want the day of, of the Christians under his preaching, he would say, and I want as a pastor the people who hear and are in this church to have a tremendous judgment day where you are piled upon reward after reward because of the souls you saved, the sacrifices you made, and the gifts that you utilized. But that day will be tremendously disappointing for people who having labored and utilized their gifts have done it in a way that was not according to the revealed will and law of God, was not in and motivated by the upbuilding of the church, but was used in order to make the church make me feel good, or that it was done without care for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. That day will be a rewardless day. If we have not love. So I wonder, have you really and honestly sat down and considered whether your service, your time, your gifts are being done with this motivation by Christ-like desire to see the church at your sacrifice grow and complete the Great Commission according to God's Word. I don't want anybody to miss out on the blessing of that, but, but the answer is not if you realize, geez, I'm, not, I'm laboring hard. I'm losing sleep. I'm sweating. I'm on every roster. I give time. I give money. I give prayer. I do all of it, and I'm very gifted. Uh, the answer now is not, oh, I don't have love. Out I go holiday for me. That's great. Because that's not love. That's more unloving selfishness. Rather, the answer is simply add love. Add love to the service. Add love to the giftedness. Repent of the unlovingness and trust that God will now redeem all of the past folly and lead you into greater fruitfulness and reward for the kingdom of God. The answer is never pull out, but rather drive in deeper for the glory of God into the service of his bride, the church. And then we see the character of love, which is just a, a big long list of all the things love is and isn't. And it's going to make you feel, if you have an open mind and an open heart, it's just going to make you feel terrible. <clears throat> love is patient. Dang, oh, I'm, I'm already gone. I'm out. Tom's gone. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast and is not arrogant. Ouch. Or rude. Well, that's maybe not necessarily true. It does not insist on its own way, unless it's very convinced it's right. It is not irritable or resentful. Sometimes. Uh, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, unless it's against the guy that really deserved it. He rejoices in the truth, if we define truth very doctrinally specifically. Yeah, I like truth. Sure. Makes me sound smart. Love bears all thing, most things. Believes 
things, hopes for, yeah, sometimes, and endures those things that are convenient. Love never ends. Yep, cool. That's how we want to define love, and it makes us feel a little bit better than sinful pagans, right? Yeah, we're loving. <clears throat> Let's just define a couple of these words and, and feel the weight of what God is showing. This is what Christ-like law-keeping looks like. Loving your neighbor, loving the Lord God looks like this. It's a very high standard that is on us. It is impossible, but it is a beautiful picture we want to aim at. It says patient and kind. In other words, the Greek words here are meaning long-suffering and willing to overlook a lot. Look, overlook the shortcomings of other people. Be patient as they make mistakes. We're able to do that because we are, as the word kind means, warm-hearted and generous with our love. We are considerate of other people. Love is... You know, look at three different categories here, is what commentators have, have pointed out. There's sort of love dealing with my own heart, love dealing with other people, and love dealing with the providence of God. Love dealing with, now my own heart is not envious, because that's not law keeping. The 10th commandment tells me that I'm not to covet or be envious over what other people can do, have, receive, or whatever. That's not loving, not to be envious. Not envious, I'm not to be boasting because that would be breaking the first commandment. So here is Paul's just sandwiched the first, the, the, the ten commandments, put them together in the very first two things that love doesn't do. It doesn't boast, it doesn't make myself out to be loved above God, but he alone is to be worshipped and worthy of praise. I don't do anything out of a desire for my own name to be recognized. I'm not arrogant, which would be to forget. I just said I'm not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. We should be thinking I ought not to be. Arrogant, which is to forget our own sinfulness, our complete and utter need in Jesus Christ. We are not arrogant so that we have an inflated idea of yourself, expecting perfection from everybody else and expecting a lot of grace from me. You're probably not going to need a lot of grace because I'm pretty, pretty good. Look at my giftings, look at my service, look at my track record. This is me. <clears throat> Love doesn't do that. Love is not rude, despising other people, treating other people lowly, as the Corinthians were doing, despising the poor, despising the ungifted, despising the needy. And it does not insist on its own way, which is to make oneself Lord. My law goes. My commandments are to be upheld in the church. My preferences should rule other people. And my standards are holy, righteous, and infinite and must never be offended by anybody else around me. So, insisting on our own way looks like. It's not the mindset of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Eden, was it? Seeking his own pleasure, willing to bleed out of just the stress of knowing what was coming, yet alone to bleed under the wrath of God in his sacrifice. He did not insist on his, on his own way. So this is our own heart. We're not envy, boastful, rude, arrogant, or insisting on our own way. Love also, as far as other people go, as you relate to other people, it is not irritable. And I'll repeat that. It's not irritable. It doesn't have a very short fuse with other people. And this is sort of their unintentional sins. The stuff they do that get on your nerve that you'd kill them. You'd kill them if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And, and given maybe it's the person you're married to or you're in church with, this can go on for decades. There's something in everybody, there's many things in all of us that just get on each other's nerves that are not intentional sins against us, just shortcomings. And for that, Paul says, love is not irritable not quick to be annoyed and frustrated with other people. And then even when it is intentional sins, the next one says it's not resentful. It doesn't hold on 
to all the ways that you've been wrong, all the ways that people sinned against you, didn't apologize, there's a list at home, talk about it with my spouse over dinner, we remind each other, all the people that need our resentment sort of feed into that with one another. I, I burn on my way home from that meetup or that church service or that fellowship group or that time that I spent with them and you, and you just reiterate, re nail the, the posters in the wall, the list of the ways you've been sinned against. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This is the ninth commandment, which of course is do not lie to your neighbor. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. But, but, but more fully, the spirit of the law is to despise what is, what is being spoken of as falsehood and rejoice in what is true and righteous. And love does not, even though they've wronged you, even though they deserve something, love does not rejoice at the, at the downfall or the, or the undoing of somebody who you might consider an enemy, especially when they're a brother or sister in the church. It even says of God that he does not he does not delight in the death of the wicked, holy as he is. His love wishes that they would come to repentance. So love does not do all these things. And of course, in relation to providence, maybe not your own sin, maybe not other people. This is just what God sends to you in life. We read here down in verse 7, love, and he sandwiches it. He, he says, love bears all things at the beginning and then endures all things with a very similar meaning, meaning it's willing to push in deep without the regard of the cost, and it's able to last forever no matter what the cost is. It bears all things and endures all things. It takes the heavy load and keeps on going until the end of Christ's call. And then in the middle, he says, believes all things and hopes all things. Sort of this picture of, of love never loses faith and never drops out its expectation of God's good actions and doings in situations. Whatever God has given to me in life, I will bear it. With endurance, love does. And I believe in God and his promises. And I, and I have unending hope. This is what love does. And I think that each of us, as we listen to all that, if we are marking ourselves up with the, uh, a correct and spiritual assessment, we are just undone. Because love, like the law, is a perfect standard that judges you and condemns you if you relate to it merely as law. But we need to relate to love as a picture of God. I'm going to read from a commentator here who says, all that Paul's done just here is describe God. That's all he did. And he gave it the word love and he showed it how it would look in us. But, but this, all he's done is describe Jesus, describe God. Listen, he, he says, God is patient and forbearing, Romans 2.4 and 9.22. He is kind, Romans 2.4 and 11.22, Titus 3.4. God does not tolerate unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, Romans 2.8. God does not reckon sins against us, Romans 4.7, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Christ's sacrifice seeks the advantage of others and not his own pleasure, Romans 15, Philippians 2.4-8. It becomes clear here in this text that Paul is describing a particular demonstration of love. God in Christ. That's what he's describing. And Paul imitates Christ and commands that we do likewise. So this is not firstly a standard that you should actually all be reaching. I'd be real disappointed if you're not. 
This is not standards of perfect church membership. This is not just because we're in the book of 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't become the basis of your justification. Love is perfectly embodied in Christ. He's the one who suffered long with us. In his love, he gave himself up, not to the flames of the flesh, but the flames of the wrath of God. He was the one who sought the benefit of even his enemies, who despised him, hated him, hated one another, never acted in love ever. He is the one who was patient and kind towards us, who did not keep the list of all the things that everybody did against him, but while they were mocking him, arms outstretched, bleeding and staining that wood, those people mocked and Jesus prayed for them. Jesus is the picture of perfect love. And in his love, he does not just give us another example, but achieves for us salvation and justification for unloving sinners like us. So that when we read this 1 Corinthians 13 list and feel dejected and pretty lousy, we bring that sin of unlovingness and selfishness and arrogance and pride and rudeness and seeking my own way, we bring all of that to the cross where love poured out over us. And we remind ourselves that that unlovingness was paid on the cross of infinite and eternal love and therefore is destroyed. And sinful though I am, and as much as these Ten Commandment feelings of the standards of love condemn me when I read them, they now become to me an assistance. I read the standards of love and I say, I can never perfect them. But in Christ, I've been imputed a perfect love and righteousness. And now empowered by the Spirit, we seek to obey and reach this standard for the good of the church and the saving of the lost. 1 John 4.10 tells us this. In this is love that we fulfilled 1 Corinthians 13. No. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And what he's about to say next is, and that doesn't just end at an example. Like, hey guys, do what I'm doing. I'm doing it to you. No, in this is love, not that we loved God or that God simply gave us an example, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, wrath-bearing sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God has loved us and therefore done away with our sins, if God has so loved us, so also we ought to love one another. This is the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ that we can be freed from our sins and freed and enabled to fulfill the law of love for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and he sort of ends here in verses 8 through 12 by just saying the eternality, the unending nature of love. Starts out in verse 8, love never ends. And he says down at the bottom uh, uh, that love endures. Love abides in verse, uh, and that the greatest of these is love. Everything he says in the middle is to say, gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, which he mentioned in chapter 12. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, you see them in verse uh, 8. Prophecies pass away, tongues pass away, knowledge passes away. But he says, love never ends. He's saying that, 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 that there are some glorious, amazing manifestations of God in redemptive history that as glorious as they are, are designed to be obsolete eventually. They're designed to be replaced. Think, if you would, as a first century Jew of the temple of God shining in its glory on top of the mountain. Surely God doesn't have a better plan than that, 
That's awesome. And yet it came tumbling down, ripped to shreds, as Jesus sent the Romans as his arm to go and destroy that blasphemous temple. And he rebuilt a new, new covenant temple in the church. And so some things, glorious as they are, are meant to die out and pass away, like the spiritual gifts. And so as glorious and as powerful and as much as they serve the church in order to win the lost, they will also pass away. Love is eternal, though, never passes away. So he also then says that, that he gives sort of three pictures of, of love not, not being, uh, sorry, of gifts not being full and lasting forever. Look at verse 9. He says, first of all, the gifts are partial. I know in part, I prophesy in part. They're, they're limited. And then he says that, uh, that we will have fullness when, when perfection comes. Then in verse 11, he gives the picture of, of the gifts are immature. Not that you're immature if you seek them. You ought to seek them. But that they, in the context of what God is planning in the future, they're, they're the infants. We expect growth and, and, and graduation from the infantile state. So that as amazing as tongues is, when you can speak other languages, you will all be speaking a unified language in heaven and understanding the speech of all people from all ages. No need for tongues. Those amazing as the gift of knowledge and of prophecy is in heaven, we will know God face to face. We will not need to be, be educated in these ways by giftings, but by our direct communion with Christ, we are ever increasing our knowledge of him. He uses this picture of the mirror. There's sort of a dim reflection. Imagine a, you know, the, the mirror that's all misted up from the hot water in the shower and it's foggy and, and you give it, a, give it a rub to try and get in, but it's still, still all messy. And, and even then, even if you have a perfect mirror, you're not seeing yourself. You're seeing a reflection of yourself. You can never see yourself. You can look at, you know, whatever. You can never look face to face with yourself, can you? You can only ever see reflections, see yourself in a screen, but that is a reflection of you. That's not you. And Paul is saying in this strange way, imagine being able to look at you from the outside. Then you would know what you are face to face. Then you would have a face to face relationship with self. And, and in the coming of Christ, as glorious as the New Testament revelation is, as much as we get in this gospel age, that day of perfection will be like meeting someone face to face for the first time that you only ever knew through little scribbles that little children had drawn for you. It'll be glorious. It'll be infinite. It'll be perfect. And then it will be perfect love. That he concludes by saying, as great as the gifts are, love is better because it doesn't end. And then he also pulls up faith and hope and he goes, and you know, as Paul says in most of his epistles, that the epitome of Christian character is faith, hope, and love. He uses that as his triad that he often mentions to people. And he goes, now even faith, hope, and love, which I always talk about, is really subservient to the ultimate thing, which is love. Because you know that you don't have faith in heaven, right? Faith is the belief in things not seen. And in heaven, you see. You realize there's not going to be hope in heaven, right? It's not going to be hopeless. It's going to be reality. You're not hoping for something future. You're experiencing eternal glory. But there will be love. There'll be perfect love. Love doesn't pass away. It only ever graduates. It only ever evolves into a more and more beautiful reality. And, and therefore, what this, this whole argument is saying is, Paul's saying, if you can find the things in the Christian life which last the longest, 
which are most eternal, which are most close to the very heart of God himself, those are the things most significant and worthy of pursuing. So that the building up of the church to the glory of Jesus in a, in a way that abides by God's law, sacrificially of self, that is love, which is eternal, the echoes of which will never run out, the rewards of which will never be seen an end of. Love is everything for the Christian. And let that undergird the way that we think about spiritual gifts, the way that you serve in the church, the way that you evangelize, the way you expend yourself for the glory of Jesus. Let love be at the center of it all. Repent of lovelessness, of self-seeking, of trying to use God for your good or use your gifts and your service as a way to leverage pride or praise from people. God is love and those united to him, he never condemns. And to those who are not Christians yet, your, still is, your sin still is in, in your account. Loving as God is, he does not bring love against the law. We saw this. Love is with the law. Love upholds the law. And therefore, love will never freely forgive a sinner who is still in his sins. What love did was satisfy the law of God by punishing sin and yet fulfilled love by making you not have to pay for your own sin. Jesus went forward, perfect, sinless, loving, never hating. He became a sacrifice for us. His flesh went forwards and paid for us so that upholding the law of God, the justice of God, he can pour out love on anyone who would come. So come today, receive the love of God that is for you in Christ Jesus. Repent of sin, trust in Christ. Let's pray. As every time that we open your word and we read standards and laws, God, we, we for thinking straight, we are condemned and we are hopeless and we are ruined and undone by your infinite holy standard. And yet, God, we are... We are renewed, and, and this conviction turns into obedience and joy when, when we remember in, with gospel eyes that that sin we have was taken by Christ, and now we are enabled to walk in a greater measure of love, a greater measure of law-keeping, a greater measure of glorifying you. Lord, I pray that as we consider love tonight, that you would, you would give us hearts that first and foremost desire and worship and love Jesus that are certain and that are assured of his finished work on the cross being the only grounds of boasting that we have for our justification and eternal life. And, and naturally it will come, Lord, if we are focused on Jesus, aware of his finished work and, and seeking to glorify him, we will be people who are like him. You tell us in uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 that we become what we behold. Let us behold Jesus as glorious and uplifted so that we can become like him. Loving, sacrificial, serving your church, zealous for the salvation of souls. Lord, may you use us in that end. Would you forgive us for our lovelessness? Would you empower love among us as your family? We love you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen.